For those of you who don't know the Emmanuel story, um, my wife and I, when we founded this church, we had so little knowledge of this thing called the covenant denomination. Um, I mean, our introduction began with an introduction to a guy named Mark Stromberg. There was a pastor named Rick Carlson who was a covenant guy, and he said, you got to meet this other guy whose name is, is Mark Stromberg. And before we go any further, I want us to, to write something down um, that I think is going to be helpful as we launch this brand new series today, and that's this. The right introduction can change your life, can it? The right introduction can change your life. Prior to founding Emmanuel, not only did we know almost nothing about the covenant, but we, church planting wasn't even on our radar. It wasn't even on our radar. But that one introduction to a man who could see something that we couldn't see um, changed not just our lives, but to different degrees, everybody in this room. One introduction. And I think if we went around, I don't think, I know if we went around Every person here in this room would have introduction stories. Introduction with people who had a profound impact. You were going one way and they helped you to consider another way. When I was a sophomore in college, I got introduced to, uh, to something. I, um, I was at Bethel at the time and, and when summer would come along, you know, it was time for us to get summer jobs. I was putting myself through college for the most part. And, and so I, I thought, let me go down to the Bethel job board and see if I can find a summer job that is a little more aligned with my vocational goals than working on the back of a garbage truck, which I've been doing for the last couple of years. And sure enough, there was this little ad there on the Bethel job board for something called the Marie Sandvik Center. The Marie Sandvik Center. We got a picture of it here. I'd never heard of it before, but I thought this sounds a lot better than what I'm doing in the summer. So I made some phone calls and I went down to the Marie Sandvik Center and I got the job. And I was really excited about that, not knowing fully what I was getting myself into. The Marie Marie Sandvik Center was formed by a woman from Norway. A young woman. She was in her probably, I don't know, early 20s maybe at the time. And when you think about the fact that she, as a young immigrant, single woman, founded the Marie Sandvik Center in inner city Minneapolis in the 40s or 50s, that's remarkable. Because women were not founding things like that in those days. You know, and along with a woman named Doris who came alongside of her, they started caring for unwed mothers and needy kids and drug addicts and alcoholics and homeless men and prostitutes and criminals right there in the corner of 11th and Franklin. Now, I only have a couple pictures from those days because I didn't own a camera, but I have this picture here of Doris and Marie together. That's Marie there on your left and Doris there on your right. That's the only picture I've got of, of the two of my, my two bosses Well, the only thing I could think of going into this new job, the only drawback I could think of was the fact that I uh, lived on the family farm and we, our family farm was about seven miles south of Hastings, Minnesota. And the thought of commuting each and every morning from south of Hastings to one mile south of where the U.S. Bank Stadium is now, that just didn't bode well for a guy who likes to make the most of every minute of every day. And so I said, hey, how would you guys feel about me just moving in right at the center? Like just moving in. And they thought that was a great idea. So when college ended, I packed up my mint green futon and uh, <laughs> loaded that and my clothes in the back of my Chevette hatchback. And woo! And uh, I drove down to the Marie Sandvik Center and I moved into a storage closet. It was awesome. 
And so the, since I was living there and I was single at the time, and this was meaningful ministry, I said, put me to work, whatever you need. Just uh, put me to work. And so I did a little of everything. I, I helped out with, we had distribution for, for families with food and clothing and blankets. And almost every night we'd open up our doors to whoever was hungry and we'd feed them a meal. And, and uh, we had recovery programs and all these things. But my main job, the reason I was getting paid was to do a kid's club. I was part of a team that was putting together a kid's club. And so what we would do is, is early on in the, in the summer, we'd go out to all the neighborhood and, and we'd, we'd put out flyers to, to all these kids and they would come and they'd get, we'd have singing and we'd have programs and games and the Bible teaching and all these, all these things. And it must be from, since none of y'all are looking at me, there must be the pictures up on the screen. So there's me, there I am with a bunch of my friends and we did the math once. We did the math once when, um, the first busload of kids was with us and the second busload of kids was being dropped off before the first busload left. Sometimes the ratio of us to them was one to 60, one to 60. And so it was crazy, but it was a good crazy. That's less than how many people you got over for dinner most nights with you guys, Tom, Tom's fans. So anyway, Thomas family. So, so anyway, so that's what was going on. But, but here's the thing that happened from a kid who grew up south of Hastings on a, on a farm. My eyes were open to some things that I had never seen um, up close. I, I drew, drove by the Marie Center several years ago, and I didn't recognize the neighborhood anymore because it looked so nice. They must have sunk a lot of money into to Franklin and around 11th and Franklin because it didn't look like that when I was there. The Marie Center at that time didn't have this nice boutique next to it. It was this... this um, it's pretty sketchy bar. And I remember each day I would, I would wake up in the morning and there'd be the fresh urine stains, you know, outside our door. And, and I'd have to pick up the, the bottles um, that the guys had left the night before and needles, a lot of needles before the kids would show up. And, uh, and I remember how um, our, most of the stores in our area, they all had bars on the windows. I remember very vividly that there was a place where you could sell your plasma for 20 bucks and at the end of the month, that line would be out the door and around the corner at the end of every month. Um, when we'd see the news, this was new to me, when I'd see the news, most of the stories of the most violent crimes were happening in the areas where we picked up our kids, right, right down in that area. And I learned to fall asleep almost every night to the sound of sirens and all kinds of things. And when we would go door to door, either to check in on our kids or, or at the beginning of the summer, you know, to open up some of those doors, I had never seen living conditions like that outside of Mexico, right here in Minnesota. And one of the things that struck me so vividly during that time was I recognized how easy it was to insulate myself from all that. Because I was 19 at the time and I'd never seen these things firsthand up close in Minnesota. You know, I'd, I'd never seen these things. And the other thing that really struck me, I was running for Bethel at the time. And so in the morning, I'd get up and I'd run. And I'd run from 11th and Franklin around Lake of the Isles and, and back. And how quickly things changed in that short run. And I recognized how easy it would be if you lived in a neighborhood just a mile and a half away. How insulated you could be from the things that I was seeing each and, and every day. And, and the older I got, the more I recognized how easy it is not just to insulate ourselves physically from things, but in other ways as well, right? And I'd encourage you to write this down in your notes because here's an important question. This is an important question. How do we keep from insulating ourselves from people and places and stories and ideas that we should be exposed to. 
Let me repeat that. How do we keep ourselves from insulating ourselves from people and places and stories and ideas that we should be exposed to? One of the themes that we keep coming back to as a church during this season in our culture is, is how dangerous it is to, to, to be in these little echo chambers where everybody in that echo chamber already believes everything that you believe. How dangerous that, that can be. Because every person on this planet has biases, don't they? Everybody does, don't we, I should say, and prejudices and blind spots. And every person who has ever lived has a limited experience. And every person that's ever lived has an incomplete understanding of the way things are. And so what we're trying to do is we're carving out some time as a church for this week and the next two. Not because we're going to finish it by then, but we want to carve out some time where we press into this. And so we're going to do a series that starts today called Unsolated. How do we come uninsulated from these things that we should be exposed to? And so on the screen there and on your bullet, and you're going to see this a lot over the next couple of weeks, this, this continuum that's underneath the unsolated title, this continuum that's one of six that have been 10 years in the making here as a church. And our hope in this, not just this series, but as, as we journey as a church, is when we'll increasingly move from, from insulated to introduced to engage in a substantive way to advocating for something that matters. Something that matters. And if you want to make the most of the series, I want to recommend a couple books. We recommend books a lot here. Um, <laughs> this will come as no surprise to those of you who just wrapped up the last series with us. We recommend books because books can take you into a deeper dive than a little article. So we want to encourage people to be book readers. And in particular, these two books we're recommending here are a great combination. I hadn't read either of them before prepping for this series. The first is a true story. It's the one that Becca was talking about, the one that's going to be the movie. Same kind of difference as me. I, I would encourage you to, to take a look at this, this book and read it through. It's a great true story of three people who were brought together and that weren't alike and the difference it made. And then the second book is this one called Toxic Charity. Becca told me to take a look at this and I'm really glad I did. It's what it does a great job of is talking about the principles that made same kind of different work. The principles. Here's how that guy opens up his book. He says this, in the United States, this is the very first paragraph. In the United States, there is a growing scandal that we both refuse to see and actively perpetuate. What Americans avoid facing is that while we're very generous in charitable giving, much of that money is either wasted or actually harms the people it's targeted to help. I mean, that should be like, a okay, I want to learn more about this right there. Because how many of you have tons of money that you're looking to waste? Right? Or time. When a world is hurting as bad as ours is, don't you want your money and your time to count? Amen. Amen. And one of the things I love about this book is it's not coming from some hipster blogger who's at some nice little trendy coffee shop just writing a bunch of theory and they've never done anything that actually mattered or actually worked, right? This isn't that. This is a guy who's been in the trenches. He's been in the trenches for decades. And he writes things like this. Some of his most pointed criticisms are directed towards churches. He says, religiously motivated charity is often the most what? Irresponsible. Our free food and clothing distribution encourages ever-growing handout lines, diminishing the dignity of the poor while increasing their dependency. We converge on inner-city neighborhoods to plant flowers and pick up trash, bruising the pride of residents who have the capacity and responsibility to beautify their own environments. 
We fly off on mission trips to poverty-stricken villages full of hearts, full of pity, and suitcases bulging with giveaway goods. Trips that one Nicaraguan leader describes as effective only in, quote, turning my people into what? Beggars. Remember that word, because we're going to see it in the Bible in just a little bit. Beggars. This guy is one of many voices who are challenging the, quote, charity with no strings attached paradigm. And he put something in writing that literally made me say amen when I read it. He wrote this. He said, be careful to limit one way, one way giving to emergency situations. You give once and you elicit appreciation. You give twice, you create anticipation. Give three times, you create expectation. Give four times, it becomes entitlement. Give five times, you establish dependency. And I said amen because I've seen this countless times. Countless times. And not just with individuals, but with organizations as well. What you'd have in a situation like he's describing there is something that's called a transactional relationship. And transactional relationships, one of the reasons we do them is they're easy. Another reason is because it makes people feel good right away. Both parties. In a transactional relationship, you've got person A or group A, and they have something that person B or group B doesn't. And so person A or, or group A gives something to someone in person B or group B that they don't have. Person B or group B comes away with some more money or some more resources and person A or group A comes away feeling better about themselves. That kind of transaction usually makes both parties feel better in the moment. But usually neither party comes away transformed. Transformed. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, may I present to you that transformational relationships is something that we're called to. And personal transformation is something we're called to. All of us. And a desire to see, a desire to see transformation is one of the things that should separate a follower of Jesus from someone who simply wants to feel better about the gap that they see between those who appear to be the haves and those who appear to be the have-nots. And the reason we're starting with an introduction is because often that's where the whole journey starts, with an introduction. And those introductions cannot just change the life of the person who's coming in trying to get a paradigm change. That introduction can change lives, plural, in all kinds of ways. Jesus of Nazareth, he set the gold standard when it comes to this. Because he was ahead of his time and because I don't know of anyone who did a better job. Jesus of Nazareth set the gold standard. And I encourage you to write this down in your notes. Jesus of Nazareth was a master at, and if you were playing fill in the blank here, you could put a whole lot of things that would be true, couldn't you, about Jesus? Here's a master at a lot of things. But here's the one I'd encourage you to consider today. Jesus of Nazareth was a master at unsolating. He was a master at unsolating. Multiple credible witnesses testified to Jesus bringing people together. Rich and poor, young and old, men and women, Pharisees and prostitutes, tax collectors and zealots, Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. And one time when Jesus had this diverse group all together, one of these mixed audiences, he told the story that I'd like for us to look at now. So if you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Luke. And we're going to look at um, a passage that begins in verse 19. 
And as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We have a stack of them there at the table on your way out. Please take one. You don't have to ask anybody. We'd love for you to bring one home because this is a book you want to get introduced to. It can change your life. So here we go. This is a story that Jesus told. There was a rich man, starting in verse 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And the story was told to this man by someone who rose from the dead. Interesting enough. Well, we visited this section of scripture before as a church family. And one of the things that's so amazing about scripture is it's like this diamond with all kinds of facets. And here's the facet that I'd love for us to focus on today. What I'd love to pull from the the text that I don't think is a stretch at all, but I think one of the things that it, it says is the fact that each of these men had something to offer the other. Each one of these men, the rich man, the poor man, each had something to offer the other. And what a tragedy it is when potential like that goes unfulfilled, right? I hate to see that. So you got Lazarus in this story. He's living a tragic life. He's so poor that he dreams of being able to even eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. He's covered with painful sores that not only hurt him physically, but probably put him in the category of unclean from society. And that whole thing that Jesus says about the dogs coming to lick his sores, that's not all those nice dogs. We've talked about this before. In that time, in that place, dogs were disease-ridden. They were street dogs. They were scary. So this is more akin to a great white licking you than old yeller licking you. This was bad. Things were bad for Lazarus. Did he lack something that the rich man had? Yes. And did the rich man lack something that Lazarus had? Yes. Let me give you one last quote from Toxic Charity because he says it better than I could say it. He says this. Service seeks a need, a problem to fix, an object to what? To pity. But pity 
diminishes and respect emerges when servers find surprising strengths among the served. Strengths not initially apparent when the served are seen as the nameless, needy, poor. Perceptions change when servers discover unseen capacities like the amazing ingenuity required to survive in harsh environments or the deep faith that depends on God for daily bread or the sense of community that sacrificially shares meager resources so that those who are most vulnerable can survive. Authentic relationships with those in need have a way of correcting the we will rescue you mindset and replacing it with mutual admiration and respect. When the rich simply offer their scraps, nobody wins. Nobody wins. Lazarus, in this case, died a tragic death. And the rich man remained as blind in death as he was in life. And why do I say that? Because he's still, even in death, in torment, is thinking of himself as superior to Lazarus. Abraham, go send the servant to do what servants do. And beyond that, the man is still filled with so much pride that he can't embrace the truth. Even if the truth came in the form of a man who died and rose again. If we don't want to see, if we don't want to see, there's enough darkness in this world to conceal the truth. Can I get an amen? Well, I want to show you just quickly a kid who opened my eyes. Um, and that, the kid, if you want to put the screen up, that's a little kid named Dante. You know, each and every week or each and every day as the, as the kids would go and the buses would take them all home, about an hour after all the kids were sent home, I'd hear a knock. On the steel door that about 300 or 400 kids had already come through that day. And it usually was Dante, either alone or with some friends. And I want to show you something. I, I, I only noticed as I was starting to uh, prepare for this message. I, again, I don't have a whole lot of pictures because I didn't have a camera. But Dante's in almost all of them. Let me show you the picture I showed you earlier. The kid on, the, on my back. That's Dante. Here's another picture. We're singing songs. It's hard to make out from the back there, but the kid who's in the very back, who's helping with the, the, the songs, the, the sheet there, that's Dante. And then this one's funny because there were a group of girls when they saw the camera, they said, hey, could, can we get a picture with you? And I said, sure. And so it's all girls except one guy in the back. And that one guy is Dante. Dante was a really neat, really neat kid. And, and he'd come and, and sometimes we, we'd shoot hoops with the, with the soccer ball there. And... Uh, other times, we'd, um, I, we'd, he'd help out. We'd just do some projects, sometimes projects i just kind of make up for him to do around the home. And a lot of times, we'd just sit out on the playground and just talk. And this 10-year-old kid, this 10-year-old kid, he opened my eyes to see things that I'd never seen. He opened my mind to think thoughts that I'd never thought. One of the things that I normally do with a passage, at least I like to do the most, is I like to take one passage like the one we read about the rich man and Lazarus and just drill down into it. And there'll be times where there'll be 14 short verses and I'll literally have 14 inches or more of books stacked on my desk because I want to just dig into that passage. Well, this week I, I felt led to, to not do that, but instead to just keep reading. I felt like I heard this little whisper that said, just keep reading and, and scan instead of diving deep. So I did that. I just got started scanning. 
And I came across this passage that I'd never really stopped to think is in such close proximity to the passage that, that Jesus told the story of the rich man and the poor man. If you have your Bibles, quickly turn with me to, to Luke 18. If you just go a little bit further, here is now a true story, a true account that happened shortly after, at least in the text here, happened shortly after the story that Jesus told about a rich man and Lazarus. It says this, uh, starting with verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And the blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded the blind man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Now, here's why I wish we had more time than we've got, because this would be a really fun passage to do a deep dive on. Because here you've got a blind man. And in that time and in that place, that's as socially powerless as you're going to find Socially powerless, you're going to find. And what does the scripture say that man's occupation was? It was a beggar. What else is he going to do? And when the beggar was brought to Jesus, and Jesus said, instead of just, obviously, you're blind, let me heal you, he said, what do you want me to do for you? And what the man didn't say was, give me some money. He wanted something more something more significant, something that could change his life. And he said, Lord, help me recover my sight. And we pick up with verse 42. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. And one of the things that one of my sources said uh, that is that a better translation of that we have in our Bible where it says um, us, it says your faith has made you well in many of our English Bibles. They said a better translation of that Greek word is actually your faith has saved you. Literally in Greek, that's what it says. And that's something that Jesus in Luke, it's fascinating to do the word study because he says that to several other people. And often in English, it's translated, your faith made you well. Jesus said, your faith saved you. At least that's how it's translated in Greek. Well, on Friday night, I was rereading this passage in bed. And, and I remembered that a lot of people said, a lot of commentators in the past, I've heard them say that often in the Bible, when Jesus does a physical healing of blindness, it's surrounded by stories of non-physical blindness. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to fact check that. Because here's a story of Jesus healing physical blindness. I'm going to fact check them. So I'm looking through. And just in chapter 19, they're all over the place. Every one of their, called the pericopes, every one of those leading up to this one has some sort of blindness, non-physical. Look at this. In, if you have your Bibles, just, you can scan. You can fact check me as I was fact checking him. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, a Pharisee is blind, but a tax collector can see. In Luke 18, 15 through 17, disciples are blind, but children can see. In Luke 18, 18 through 30, a devout, rich, young ruler is blind and doesn't follow Jesus. In Luke 18, 31 34, the disciples and the Gentiles are blind to things that only Jesus can see. All of that and more leads up 
to this account where Jesus heals someone who says, I want to see. I want to see. And you know what comes right after that? Right after the story that we just read. There's another true story of a vertically challenged tax collector who wants to what? See Jesus. So badly that he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. As the song goes. And Jesus declares, catch this. You know what Jesus says to him after the guy can now see and says, I'm going to change my life? Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. And then Jesus goes even further and he says, the whole reason the Son of God came was to seek and to save the lost. That's right there. This next question is so important. I encourage you to write this down. Do you want to see? And I'm not going to let you off the hook easy because I'm not going to let myself off the hook easy because it's easy. Oh, yes, I really want to see. Do you? Do you want to see? Because it's a whole lot easier, a whole lot easier to stay blind. It's a whole lot easier not to see. Because if you want to see these things that we're talking about in this series, they're messy. They are hard. There's no easy solutions. You can go years and years and years and it looks like you have a breakthrough and then there's a relapse. You can think you've changed and then you snap back. (laughs) Do you want to see? It's a whole lot easier not to see. But with a show of hands, how many of you know that easier is not always better? Here's one of the things that the rich man learned in the book, some kind of diff- same kind of different as me. The rich man said this, I could hardly believe that places like he began to see still existed in America. I thank Denver, his new friend, for taking me there, for taking my blinders off. And the poor man's eyes were open too, this guy named Denver, because he used to question. He said, all of you white people who come down here, you're all the same. You're just doing this to feel good about yourself. And here's a direct quote from him. He's talking now about this friend he made, his wife. He said, she wanted to know and truly serve these people, not merely feel good about herself. Now, going back to Jesus, we don't know in the story that Jesus told if the rich man actually gave scraps to Lazarus. It said, hey, Lazarus wishes he could have had the scraps. It doesn't say whether or not he got them. And you know what? That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Because this is what we do know. We do know that scrappy faith is not God-honoring. Giving God your scraps, scrappy faith, that's not God-honoring. Let me go this far. Scrappy charity is almost always ineffective. Just giving your scraps. And if this were youth group, your fill-ins would probably look a little different because they'd probably have you write something like scrappy faith and crappy faith are the same or something like that, right? The same as scrappy charity and crappy charity. They're the same thing. How about we don't settle for either of those? Amen. How about, and my my heart's pounding my chest right now. That didn't happen in the first service. This is, it's a scary thing to ask this as individuals and as a congregation. Let's ask God, give us eyes to see, even beyond what we've seen now. Let's ask, what does it mean for us to really engage the world in substantive ways, not just ways that make us feel good or that make our balance sheet say, oh, you give 10% to missions. How about we give 100% to God? Asking questions like, God, help us to send money when we're supposed to send money, but also saying, help us to do more when we should do more. 
And when we do this well, awareness becomes action. And when we do this well, we can defy and shatter paradigms of what suburban Christians are like. And when we do this well, the rich can see their poverty and the poor can realize their potential. And when we do this well, the biblical mandates to be slow to judge isn't going to have to be a command because as we do this well, we're going to realize I've got blind spots everywhere. It's just a matter of bringing them to the surface. And I'm going to be really slow to judge because I don't know that person yet. And when we do this well, we can mobilize both capital and intellectual resources of every member. And when we do this well, we can build bridges that haven't yet been built. And when we do this well, a $50 microloan to the right person can change a destiny for a family. From destitute to thriving. And when we do this well, donors and recipients become brothers and sisters. And when we do this well, our neighbors, our neighbors won't be able to imagine what the neighborhood would be like without us. And when we do this well, we can sleep at night. Not because all the world's problems have been fixed, but as much as it depended on us in this day, we did what Father asked us to do. And when we do this well, we're going to have a whole lot more conversations like I had in that lobby on Wednesday night with a young man named Ramundo who grew up on the streets of Juarez and who was introduced to a bunch of Minnesotans and who now was sitting out there with his lovely bride, Jessica, and we're sitting around on those little tables on Wednesday night and he was talking about us and he was calling us family. He said, this is my family. And he said, you know, he's already, he and Jessica are doing such a great job already with the kids. They're already giving tremendously. But he said, what else could we do? What else could we do to, to, to make a bigger difference in this world? Right here and in other places too. There's a lot of examples out there of people who are not doing this well, aren't there? And what we're going to pick up next week is Pastor Jason is going to take us deeper into this whole idea of how do we engage well? So let me pray a blessing over us as many of us go our separate ways, but some of us, remember, we got that connect lunch right after church. We'd love for you to join us right up here. Meet for the lovely, lovely tour. Let's pray. Here's the blessing I want to give. It's short and sweet today. God, God, may you bless us with eyes that see both as individuals and as a church. And oh, I want to add this too, and as families and as friends in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.